0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. So, how are you handling all the trials? In your life these days? I know you have some. I know you have at least a few, probably a lot more than that. And even if you've not contracted you know, the COVID-19 virus, you've, uh, you've been affected by it, haven't you? We all have. The phrase, I haven't heard it in a number of weeks now, but at the beginning of the, the, the pandemic, I heard it quite often, we're in this together, that phrase was rightly coined. It's certainly true. Uh, some folks I know really have been sort of paralyzed uh, by fear because of it. Fear, anxiety, a sense of uh, despair on the part of some or hopelessness, while others are simply defiant. I'm not going to wear this mask Nobody can make me do that. This is all a conspiracy anyway, and everything else in, in between. It's affected all of us in different ways. Uh, there are some I know who have lost their jobs. Others, uh, even unconnected with the virus, are facing different kinds of uh, sickness, disease, we're witnessing together a uh, a failing economy, a failing political system, all kinds of uh, of racial violence today. It's uh, it's all shameful. Someone asked me a while ago, "Are we in the tribulation? Is this the beginning of uh, the seven years of tribulation?" No, I don't think so. But it may be a picture of what the beginning of the tribulation on Earth might look like one day. If you look at uh, if you read Matthew 24 and uh, 25, it seems that we're we're getting ripe for the Antichrist to come along and take control. Give him control. We're witnessing the power and the influence of a of a media. Uh, that seems to be out of control these days. But uh, all things will get better. There are many who are saying, well, once the election takes place, it'll all calm down. And once we have a vaccine, all the trouble will end. Oh, you really think so? I'm, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the new normal is going to be looked like be looking like for us. But most importantly, as a Christian, what is all this doing to you? What kind of a perspective do you have as a believer of all that's going on today and all the kinds of trials that, that we're all being called upon to face? And certainly none of us is um, immune to the circumstances and the Uh, The pressures that are plaguing our culture today, by and large. What Jesus even said, it rains on the just and on the unjust as well. We all are experiencing it. But in short then, how are you dealing with life and trials at this point in 2020? And what's more, where is God where is God in all of this? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever ask Him, Lord, where are you? Why don't you do something? Why don't you help us in some way? Where is He? Well, allow me to share some things this morning with you from, from Scripture that I've, that I've had to remember or learn for myself in recent weeks and months now. Um, and they're in no particular order of importance but let me share them with you. I want to read a number of uh, scriptural references this morning. Let me encourage you to, uh, to follow along carefully and read them along with me as you can. If you can't do that, simply uh, jot them down as I do go along this morning. Uh, number one, number one, we're not the first Christians to face severe trials. You say, well, isn't that obvious? Uh, yes, of course it is, but lest we, we develop a, a woe-is-me mentality because of all that we go through nowadays, we have to be reminded or remember that we are not the first Christians to face severe trials. There are times, I believe, that we think no one has ever had it this tough or this inconvenient as we do today. And I think suffering may seem worse for us today because we are so affluent as a nation. Even in the midst of a financial crisis, we have so much yet. We are so affluent. But in reality, we face much or far less than many of God's people have been called upon to face throughout history. Let me illustrate some cases for you. let start with Noah. Noah has to build an ark, a large ship, build it and then live on it for a year while God is in the process of destroying the entire earth and every single human being on it. Well, would you say that qualifies as a trial? Uh, yes, I certainly would. And remember about these very familiar biblical characters and stories. Remember, these are real men and women with like passions as as we have who live life just as we live it, as Joseph. Joseph's ordeal included a violent separation from his family at a very young age. It included uh, captivity. And a prison sentence for Joseph. And then there's Israel, the nation Israel, the people of God trudging through the wilderness in need of what? Food and water. The, the basic necessities of life, food and water. But we grow impatient when we have to wait in line, don't we, at the grocery store, the bank, and we complain that we can't even sit down in our favorite restaurant and enjoy a quiet meal with someone. We have so much. Of course, there's Job. We read of Job just a few moments ago, and Job's suffering. Did anyone suffer more than Job, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, Jonah, thrown overboard of a ship. Swallowed by a great fish, but still has the wherewithal in the sense to pray while he's inside the belly, the fish, and worship and adore God even then. Trials of Jonah. And even in the book of Hebrews, here's one reference. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer is looking back into Old Testament history and reviewing the lives of men and women who demonstrated true faith in the true God. And listen to what he mentions about some of these men and women. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 36, he says, Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. And he goes on and says, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Last time I looked, none of us had to wear sheepskins or goat skins or be destitute. No, certainly we're not, the, uh, we're not the first to suffer great trials. Then in chapter 13, Of Hebrews, the writer reminds his fellow believers in verse 3 to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. He says, these are your brethren who are suffering in jail because of their faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we've not experienced that. Not even close to it. And then there's Peter. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 talks about the suffering of believers. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised, he says, when you're called upon to suffer for your faith. Well, I dare say none of us has experienced that suffering yet. I say yet because you can see at a distance it's, it's coming, uh, perhaps slowly but surely, but it's coming our way when our faith in Christ is going to be tested we're not the first generation of believers to suffer trials. We can't conceive of anyone having it more, uh, more inconvenient than we do today. But this all com- pales in comparison to what life was like, especially in Europe during the 1300s with the, the Black Plague. Been doing some reading about it in recent weeks and months back in the 1300s. It was so dangerous, it was so lethal that people went to bed at night perfectly well, perfectly healthy, never to wake up again. Died in their sleep. The mortality rate in those days ranged from 20% to 90%. 90% in some areas of the world. And of course, true Christians were numbered among those who were called upon to suffer they were not exempt but God where are you in all of this perhaps that's your thinking or perhaps you've said that to God and you're not the first there are a number of psalm writers who voice the same kinds of fears and anxieties and pleas to God for help psalm 10 is one of them Psalm 10 and verse 1, the the author says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That's what we think sometimes or say to God. Where are you? Don't you care? Are you there? Same thing in Psalm 28 and verse 1, the psalmist says, Lord, don't be deaf to my cry. Do you hear me? Do you hear me, Lord, when I cry out to you? Help me. Help us in our trial. It's okay to say that. It's okay to pray that. It's okay to feel or or think that. God can handle it. The saints of old uh, felt the same thing, prayed the same thing. God understands that. God hears that. He can handle that. He knows what we're like, what we're made of. He knows our weakness. What does it say? He knows that we are but, but dust. But number one, we are not the first Christians to face severe trials. Number two, and perhaps this would be even more important, and I I've, I've phrase this in the form of a question Is God sovereign or isn't He? Is God sovereign or isn't He? In other words, is God in control of everything or isn't He? Does God know what He's doing? Does God know what He's allowing on earth today? What He's allowing us to go through today? See, if if God is not sovereign over the earth and all of the elements, think of all the, the hurricanes and natural disasters around the world, if He's not sovereign over all of that and sickness and disease of all kinds, if He's not sovereign over all of that, then everything happens by random chance. Then nothing has any purpose then nothing has any meaning at all in life if God is not sovereign, if he's not in control. It was Charles Spurgeon who wrote this, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. A number of years ago, I typed that out and framed it and pinned it to my wall, right in front of my desk at home. So I am always reminded of the control of God, the sovereignty of God, that it is the pillow upon which the child of God, you and me, rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. Do you see that in Scripture? Do you see that? I think there's there's no attribute of God that is more or that should be more comforting to us, especially in the days we live in today, than the sovereignty of God. John Piper just very recently wrote a book on the sovereignty of God as it relates to the virus of our day, and I quote him. He says, the same sovereignty that could stop the coronavirus is the very sovereignty that sustains the soul in it. Is God sovereign? Is he in control? Or is he not? And God's sovereign rule reaches everywhere. It reaches down to where you and I live. Every single day. Reaches, no matter where we are, it reaches us, it touches us even in the political mess and the political turmoil that we see today. Remember the trial of Jesus. and one of the, one of the phases of his, his trials before the crucifixion was to appear before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And remember remember Pilate's frustration. He kept asking Jesus questions, and Jesus wouldn't answer. He remained silent. And the more he was silent, the more frustrated and angry Pilate became. And finally, he asks the question of Jesus. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? It's all up to me, Jesus. Remember Jesus' reply? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. There, my friends, is the sovereignty of God in action, even amongst the rulers of the world. That God's in control, that He is sovereign. Even King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, an unbelieving pagan king of Babylon had the right perspective of God's uh, sovereign rule when he said the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God does that. God is the ultimate sovereign, not man, and it's God who ordains the course of history before history even occurs, before it all unfolds before us. I want you to look with me in uh, the book of Isaiah. There are some great verses in Isaiah regarding this subject, but in Isaiah chapter 40 especially, and here's God revealing himself, his greatness, to the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 40 of Isaiah, just listen to how God describes himself in comparison to us. To the world and to rulers of this world. Verse 22 It is He, God, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants, that's us, are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes or presidents or congressmen and women, or dictators, or premiers, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Verse 24, "'Scarcely are they planted,' meaning placed in a position of authority. "'Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth,' when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like a stubble. Man is nothing uh, in comparison to God. Daniel says it's God who removes kings or presidents or congressmen and it's God who sets them up, removes them and sets them up. Daniel chapter 2. But wait a minute. We thought that we did that. We thought we walked into the voting booth and said, I want him, I want her. But God takes us beyond the voting booth here. It's God who is sovereign. The psalmist in Psalm 75 verse 7 says, it's God who puts down one and sets up another. God does that. And even Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, Solomon is looking at life, he's looking at the world and seeing how God operates, but he also saw the sovereignty of God. In Proverbs chapter 21, in verse 1, he says, the king's heart, and there's the leader again, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he, God, turns it wherever he will. Because God is sovereign, not man, God is. God is infinite, we're not. God has infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge. We don't. Job knew that God had the right to take away what he had given Job. He told his wife, shall we receive good from God? and not calamity, or not trouble, more literally. God has the right to do what he wants. Why? Because he's in control. He is sovereign. Now, I don't understand what God's purposes are all the time, most times. I don't know what God's purposes are in, in our nation, in our world today, or for the most part, in, in my life, even, today. But I have no doubt that God is at work. And I have no doubt that God is at work in our nation. We are not like a, we're not on a runaway train headed for a cliff. No, God is still in control. And God is, God is never the author of evil. We need to remember that. God is never the author of evil. He is never the author of sin. But he is the author of a bigger story, a bigger picture that contains or includes evil and sin. He allows it because he is sovereign. He allows it. But ultimately, in life and in history, God is going to be glorified as he deserves. He will be glorified because God's purposes cannot be thwarted in any way. So no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in this morning, we need to remember what Paul says in Romans 8, that all things, all things are working together for our eternal good because we belong to Christ. So we just simply need to remember the sovereignty of God. Number three Number three, we must learn to balance what I call our our input of influence. We must learn to balance our input of influence. And let me try to explain that if I can. You and I will never have God's perspective of the world events and our future if all we have is a steady, steady, diet of the news if that's our major source of input as a Christian in the Christian life if that's everything to us then we're missing something we will never have a true and right and godly perspective of the world events even if we watch Fox News or the internet matters not See, we've become so worldly wise, but not wise according to the scriptures, according to the Word of God. We are, let's face it, we are all inundated, we are flooded by the world's wisdom, the world's perspective on life, what life is to be like. We're inundated by the world's philosophy. Always. But remember the words of Jesus. Man cannot live by bread alone, by the physical things of life, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what we need to learn. We need to learn to balance our input of influence. James, look in James chapter 3. James talks about what wisdom is. James 3, verse 15. <clears throat> James James talks about the wisdom that belongs to the world. It's the wisdom of this world system, in other words, that you and I live in 24-7. Notice what he says, James 3, verse uh, 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Notice how he describes it. But this wisdom is earthly. Of course it is. It's unspiritual, the world's wisdom is. Of course it is. It's unspiritual. And notice what else he, how else he describes it. It's demonic. It's demonic. has its source in evil and the demonic world. For where there is jealousy, selfish ambition, where they exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And isn't that the truth? That's the world in which we live in today. But, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We live in a system and we are influenced by a system that is degenerate, that is evil. John writes about it in 1 John chapter 2, listen to what he says, for all that's in the world The desires of the flesh, the desires of the uh, eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Joe read for us from Philippians chapter 4. The scriptures have to be the biggest source of influence in our lives. From Philippians uh, 4 and verse 8, whatever is pure, whatever is good, and so on and so on. Well, that's the scriptures, my friend. That's your Bible. And he says, he finishes that portion by saying, think or literally dwell on these things. We dwell on everything else but These things of Scripture. But that's what we need to dwell on God and His Word. And so we need to balance our input of influence. One last thing, number four the return of Jesus is the key to having the right perspective on life. The return of Jesus is the key to having the right perspective. Jesus, my friends, is coming. James writes about it in James chapter 5, verse 7. He tells believers here who are suffering, suffering greatly because of their faith, he tells them to be patient in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See, even that generation of believers, even the church of that day was told to expect the Lord's return. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains, but you also be patient, establish your hearts. In other words, be firm in the Lord, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Later he says, the judge is at the door. He's almost here. The return of Christ is the key to having the right perspective. Philippians chapter 3 is another reference. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, heaven, we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. We wait, we wait for the Lord and His return. Hebrews 10, verse 25 says, The day of His return is drawing near. It's drawing near. Look with me at uh, 2 Corinthians these are a couple of my favorite favorite verses 2 Corinthians chapter 4 2 Corinthians chapter 4 let's begin at verse uh, 16 and so we do not lose heart. You ever lose heart? You ever despair? You ever become so discouraged? Paul will be saying to you and to me as well as the church at Corinth, don't lose heart. Though our outer self, that's your body, our physical bodies, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Notice the words here in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction. Think of the trials people go through today. Think of the sickness, disease, all kinds of things. What does he call it all? This light momentary affliction. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison. That's why we shouldn't lose hope as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're changing all the time, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They never will change, remain constant. On at least three different occasions in the New Testament, the, uh, the Apostle Paul is, is, says that he is eagerly and that we should be eagerly awaiting Christ's return because it's the key to having the right perspective. That's what helps to bring us through trials because Jesus could come now. Now. Or now, you see? So don't give up hope. Don't lose hope hope well let me wrap this all up remember we're not the first generation of christians to undergo trials we need to learn to trust in the sovereignty of god he is in control we need to learn to balance our input of influence and we need to be patient because christ's return it's always been imminent he may not come in the next two minutes, but he may. His return is always imminent, and we need to be ready. One more verse, and I'll close with this from Romans, Romans chapter 8. Beautiful verse, verse 18 of Romans 8. For I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time, that was Paul's time, but it's our time as well because Scripture is timeless. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory we see one day coming Will be incomparable to everything else. That, my friends, one day, that will be the new normal. That's what we wait for. Let's pray.